Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone. It is Nick here. We are back again with another episode of the Scale Up Your Business podcast. And today, we are going to get into my favorite topic. My favorite topic is growth. It is exponential growth. It's how do you how do you get a business to grow significantly quicker than the actual founder thinks is possible? And I'm delighted to have on the show Mr. David B. Horn. Now he has written, David has written one of my favorite books on this topic. It is called Add Then Multiply how small businesses can think like big businesses and achieve exponential growth. So I suggest that you get onto Amazon and buy that book. It is really, really good. And we're going to talk about this today, about how do you actually do that? So remember, one of my things is, you know, if you're a business that's growing organically, that's cool, right? That's what we all do when we first start out and we start up to scale up. We try and win, you know, our next customer and we grow that way one customer at a time. But what happens if you do that, but then you also overlay the more strategic stuff? What happens if you buy your competitors, buy your suppliers, you decide to grow geographically through strategies like joint ventures and partnerships? What happens then? What happens if you put those two together? You know, what happens if you drive organic and strategic growth? What does that give you? Is that going to get you to your end game, whatever that end game is, significantly quicker? So that's what I believe, and uh, it's always great to have someone on the show who believes the same stuff. <laughs> so you're going to enjoy the conversation, a little bit more about who David is. As I said, he's the founder of Add Then Multiply. It's a consultancy that works exclusively with business founders who want to grow fast. He's a, a chartered accountant with PwC. He's been involved in a hell of a lot of fundraising, and he is also the founder of Funding Focus, which is an educational business that is raising awareness and supporting women and racial minorities who face a very uneven playing field when trying to raise capital for their businesses. So that's it today. Uh, I'm not going to apologize. I was going to say I'm going to apologize up front for my excitement at this topic. Uh, But all of you regular listeners know me well enough by now that that's just how it is. Here we go. Hi, everyone. Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business for another week. I am delighted to have on the show with me today, Mr. David B. Horn. Welcome, David. Thank you. Nice to be here, Nick. We're going to get into some of my favorite subjects today. We're going to get into funding, fundraising, how you do that effectively and efficiently, and and some of the stuff that I know you've done in your career. Uh, And we're going to talk about my probably my favorite subject, which is how you grow and scale via acquisitions. But just to give the audience a little bit of a flavor of who you are, you are the founder of Add Then Multiply, which is also an amazing book, may I add, as well. Thank Love you. the book. Um, you have trained as a chartered accountant with PwC. Uh, you've been the CFO of a number of companies. I know you've been involved in fundraising for a long time, acquisitions for a long time, uh, yeah. and now you run a consultancy that covers all of those different things. 
And you're also the founder of Funding Focus, which is an educational business raising awareness and supporting women and racial minorities who face a very uneven playing field, as you say, trying to raise capital for their businesses, which I have also had personal experience in. So I totally agree with you. So welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So let's start off with, you know, how you got to where you got to, but a little bit of your background, and then let's get into kind of the main topics, which will be funding and acquisitions today. But let's okay, let's hear a sure. bit of David's story. Sure. So um, I'm originally from Canada, which explains the funny accent, um, uh, although I've lived here for many years, so it's it's kind of softened. Um, I, uh, I trained as a chartered accountant with PwC, um, transferred with them from Vancouver to Zurich, Switzerland. I'm a fluent German speaker, and when I qualified, I said I wanted to speak in a German-speaking office, and... Uh, one day I walked into the office and there was a telex. This is a long time ago. There was a telex <laughs> from, uh, from uh, well, back then it was Price Waterhouse Zurich, um, offering me a job. And so in the summer of 1987, uh, my wife and I got on board the first of three airplanes. Uh, we had a two-year employment contract and uh, one-way tickets. And that was 34 years ago. Do you know what I love about this conversation already, David, is like I get harassed all the time for my weird accent, which is hybrid Australian. It sounds very Australian like now, right? And then English and then sort of US a bit. And you've got the whole Canadian German thing going on yep. and a bit of English. Absolutely. And- <laughs> Absolutely. That's oh, that's the colorful yeah. part. So so yeah, so I was so I was with PW in or PwC in, in Zurich for, for a couple of years, and then I um I got an amazing job offer to join my biggest client. Uh, which was um, NCR that was in the process of being acquired by AT&T, uh, which for those of your listeners who are a little longer in the tooth might remember that until the dot-com boom, that was the AT&T's acquisition of NCR was widely considered one of the worst ever M&A transactions. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, was, we- I was well removed from the deal, but I remember that that was kind of my first flavor of, of M&A, um, being on the receiving end of a, of a hostile takeover bid. It's funny, um, isn't it? Because M&A, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff happening in the M&A space now for, for various reasons. That's why I spend a lot of my time in there. But people forget, if you go back, say, 20, 30 years, I mean, I was involved in some companies that just grew through acquisitions, so Getty Images being one back in the sort of late 2000s. Yeah. But they didn't all go to plan. Nope. <laughs> there were quite a few where I remember a long time ago when things were flying pre the 2008 crash, so organic growth. Yep. Um, people were talking about acquisitions as being too risky and not doing as many of them. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, I do. But things things go, don't I they? Do. They become a little uh, bit. They go in flavor. They become flavor of the month for a period of time. But exactly. So, exactly. so how did you get- done done properly? Acquisitions are way less risky than starting something organically because you've got a business there that's already working. That's right. That, that's what I believe too. And and I think your point there to be underlined is done properly and what that yeah. means. Yeah. So let's 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 kick off with because we started there. Let's kick off with acquisitions, and then I want to talk yeah. about fundraising around that. So, sure. so when did you first? So your first experiences in M and A. What just give us a little bit of the flavor of what that was like? Yeah. So I mean, when I was at NCR, I was you know I was way way removed. So I simply observed it as the company was being taken over, and I saw how the integration was very badly handled, and and I saw how the two cultures were just so different. Um, I mean, NCR had been a very command and control, strict hierarchies, strict policies. You know, I was the financial controller of NCR, and our financial accounting policy manual was six lever arch files. It, literally everything told you, told you what to do. And, <laughs> and AT&T came in, and they had a very open, trusting 
everybody's beautiful kind of culture and the two cultures just that was a bit of a that was a bit of a mess but that was for me simply observing yeah. um the first deals i actually got involved in where i was doing the deals and the integration and actively involved in the MA uh came about um in the year 2000 i was the european cfo of a um new york based pr agency that had just expanded into europe um, they had bought an agency in uh, the UK and an agency in Germany, and they were having a hellish time getting any information out of the people in Germany. And they knew that they had expansion plans, so they were looking for someone who spoke German and um, was a uh, was a CFO level. And they found me, um, and I joined that group um, in a two year period. We bought seven PR agencies. Wow! Um, and so we'd bought. I think four in the UK, another two in Germany and one in Belgium. And we were in discussions with agencies in France, Spain, and Italy when our parent company got gobbled up by Interpublic Group. And okay, we okay. got merged into Weber Shandwick, which was their PR agency, which was like a hundred times our size in Europe. So having grown by acquisition, then we got acquired. Um, and that's quite a common thing. I mean, I, I've been involved in in some marketing services and marketing agency roll-ups like that, where you create some scale. And back when I was at Getty, there were like four big players in that sort of agency space. I forget the there's a few more now, but you had WPP and all those sort of. And then if you had a certain amount of scale because you'd acquired someone else, then you suddenly raised above the rest, exactly. and then you became a target. Exactly. Yeah. Very much so. And so we, yeah, so we got gobbled up. Um, and and not surprisingly, within six months, uh, I was invited to a, a meeting and, and given a check and shown the door because, you know, Weber Shandwick had their own European CFO and, and, and they were way the bigger outfit. And um, I wasn't interested in any of the smaller jobs. And so I left. And then and then I got introduced through a, a director of mine at the agency who was also a non-exec director of a, a FTSE 100 company. Um, and uh, the man who was the chairman there had just gone from executive to non-executive chairman and floated a new cash shell on AIM um, and had just completed his first acquisition and needed someone with finance and M&A skills. And, and um, uh, this director, co-director of mine from the PR agency, Angela, um, uh, introduced me to John John Van Cuffler, the founder of, of this aimlisted business. And so I joined that group at the beginning of uh, 2003. Um, and over a three and a half year period, we made seven acquisitions and grew revenue from 1.1 to 27.7 million. There you go. So if anyone, just to draw another line under our conversation for anyone listening about why acquisitions are pretty powerful, just listen yeah. to that. Yeah, no, I'm joking. Exactly. It, it's, it's, it's literally tripling every year, three years in a row, 1.1 so to 3.3 to 9.9 to 27. So as we record this, right, I've got a webinar tonight I'm running on, it's, it's called Business Buying in 2021. And I've got 180 people coming to it. And the title that we sent out in the email to our, our community on Facebook was how you can double your revenues overnight, right? That's our catchy yes. little title, but you've just, yep. <laughs> you've just tripled in the space as well. I wouldn't say overnight, but it's not far off, but it's true though, isn't it? If you, if you're, if you're kind of, again, strategic about what you're trying to achieve, in other words, you have a clear plan, clear purpose, and you know, the marketplace, you have an understanding, you know, going out there and buying competitors or buying suppliers, the difference between vertical and horizontal um, acquisitions 
you know, you can really grow quickly. And, you know, if you know what you're doing and, and you stay aligned to the strategy, I, I mean, what's your view around acquisitions versus organic? I mean, they obviously both have to be in play, but in terms of yeah. your weighting. I mean, organic is safe. Organic is slow and steady. Um, organic for founders who are, and, I, and this may be bridging into our other topic, but for founders who are not ready or willing mentally to not own 100% of their business, um, then organic is probably the only way unless they've generated enough internal cash flow to fund acquisitions um, or they go out and do these, you know, buy something for no money down deals, but I'm not a big fan of those. Um, so, you know, organic is good and it's safe, but it, it takes a long time to double a company when you're growing organically. And growing organically, you're subject to the, you know, the vagaries of, of economies that rise and, and fall. And you might be going along all well and good, and then all of a sudden a recession comes and you go back down again. Whereas, you know, growing by acquisition, as I said right up front, you know, done properly, it's it's the fastest way. There's no question. Um, is, there, is there a point in the business life cycle or business stage that you think acquisitions come into play? Well, I typically, when I'm talking with founders, I say if your turnover is less than a million pounds, carry on growing organically. You know, maybe if you could do little bolt on bits and pieces, but but don't look at doing any kind of substantial acquisition because you need to build sufficient value in your own business before you then go out and, and acquire someone else. Um, just because, you know, the, 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 whether you do it through debt or equity or vendor funding or, you know, a combination of however you structure the deal, you, you are going to get diluted and you don't want to, you know, you want to have a certain scale before you get diluted down in a, in a big way. On the other hand, I've, you know, I mean, I've, I, during my, um, during my eight years as, as CFO of two A-listed companies, um, we did three transactions that were classed as reverse takeovers because we bought a company that was bigger than we were. Yeah. Well, this, this is the thing that in the different deal structuring, because I don't believe in what I call the no money down deals. But that said, I've done 117 acquisitions. Wow. And okay. I've never, ever paid a price like, a, like you know, this, this concept of an asking price. I've never actually paid the cash in one hit. Yeah. And the cash has always come from multiple sources. Right. So, yep. so obviously, some component of deferred payment or, or, or seller financing, as it's called in the States mainly, yep. some component of leveraging, you know, against the yep. assets of the business. Yep. Um, and some component component of either cash from the business or an investor stake. So a lot of the deals I do these days, which are small business deals, they're still like between the one and 10 million, the one that I, I do personally. If we haven't got the cash accessible to our group who does this, we will bring an investor in. Right. And usually what we do is we can leverage up to 10 to 20% of the price. Everything else is leveraged. So we, we've got that gap, if you like. So for, for arguments, like let's say the business is worth... 2 million, we might have to find, let's say 400K to get the deal yeah. done. Normally yeah. what we do is we actually, if someone puts cash in, we double the equity value of the cash, which is quite yeah. generous, but yeah. we're saying effectively that the cash is worth more at that point it, in the transaction than all the other stuff it, that's exactly. been leveraged. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the other, the other structure that I've used a number of times is, um, is a, a, on a share for share basis. So there's no cash, um, but but there's a, a group that's doing the acquisition, and and you simply acquire you know Target Co, and Target Co gets you know exchanges its share for 
for, for shares and hold. Yeah, take me through that model because we haven't talked, we've talked a lot about some of the more leveraged deals, but we haven't talked okay. about the, those ones. So it'd be good to unpack that for our listeners. Sure. So, so the idea here is if you've got a, a, a holding company, we'll call yep. it Holdco, and it can be public or private. Um, I've recently done a number of transactions with one that's private. Um, we've had an independent valuation done on the company um, by a top 10 firm of accountants so that we can go out to the marketplace and say, our company is worth X. Here's the report that says why it is worth X. You know, you can argue, you can argue the toss if you want, but we're going to offer you shares based on that valuation. We'll then do a valuation of your company. So let's do this to keep the math simple. Yeah. Our, our company is worth 10 million. Um, your company is worth half a million. So we will give you half a million's worth of shares in our company, however many that is, in return for 100% of your shares. Got it. And typically what we'll do is we'll say half of it now, and then the other half might be in, in, in a, a chunk after two years and a chunk after four years based on hitting a performance objective. And in those sort of deals that you've done, is there any cash transaction at all? Is there any uh, like closing payments? Sometimes a, yeah, sometimes there's a small amount of cash. Um, if there's a lot of working capital in the business, yeah, that's that's the most tax effective way for the for the founders to take the money out because it's a capital payment as opposed to being a dividend or a salary payment. Yes, indeed. Um, so we'll often do that. Um, a lot of the PR agency deals. In fact, every one of the PR agency deals I did had a a, a six month working capital adjustment. Yeah. Uh, so basically six months after completion, both parties agreed and we would usually have the accountants come in and do a mini audit on it that said, here's the balance sheet at the at the completion date. Here's the working capital that the business has needed as demonstrated over the six months. Here's the excess working capital and that's a cash payment that goes out to the vendors. Yeah, I've, I've had to, most of the deals I've been involved have needed something, you know, yeah. even if it's just a sweetener because depends, I suppose, again, on the, the psychology and the motivation of the person selling the business, but there's that feeling of a reward, you know, something Correct. that's more tangible. No, I get Correct. that. And, and, and in this particular client, they're building a pool of businesses that have complementary services. Um, and, and so it might be that, you know, Division A now all of a sudden sees clients over in Division C and says, oh, hang on a minute, let's do a deal between us and, 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 and you know, grow the pie overall. Um, yeah, it's fascinating the, the amount of ways that you can structure deals, right? You know, I think, you know, I counted about 15 different ways of doing it when I was adding it up. But um, what I want to talk about, which you may, I'm not sure if you had any experience, a friend of mine who we may know um, jointly, a guy called Jeremy Harbour. Do you know Jeremy? Yeah, I know He's Jeremy. Friends of, um, friends of Daniel's. Yeah. He, he and his business partner, Callum, favor this model called agglomeration. Have you had yes, any exposure to that? Uh, yeah, I, I know Callum much better than I know Jeremy. I've, okay, I've met okay. Jeremy once on a webinar, but I, I know Callum fairly well. Yeah, um, and it's I've, a small I've world read their, <laughs> I've, I've he, read their book, Agglomeration. Yeah, well, he, he and um, I were, were, were part, well, we didn't, we didn't effectively get anything done in the end, but we were partnering up on a raise a while back to kind of get oh, some okay. private equity behind what he was doing. But what's yep. your view? I mean, agglomeration, um, just for everyone listening, because I think, again, we haven't touched on it, so I'd be curious in your thoughts. This is where um, effectively an entity is created, which is going to float on the stock exchange. It's going to IPO yep. pretty much, isn't it? Um, again, yep. And so the premise here is, you know, join forces in an industry. It could be a marketing-based industry. It could be another industry. Um, I know they do some stuff in education. And the value of, of the exit is from the combined, uh, you know, the, the coming together of those businesses for the IPO. That's effectively Correct. how it works. Yeah. Um, so you're effectively selling your business or putting your business into the group for the expected payday 
Uh, and yep. it's very similar, I think, again, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not just similar to the idea that there's valuations of those businesses done and then the shares are split up based on the valuations of the businesses going in. Correct. And then as new businesses come in, if it's a listed vehicle, then there's a share price and 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 that's how the deal gets structured. Yeah, I've always, then, I, I mean, I, I'm a simple guy, right? <laughs> I'm a simple guy. I quite like just buying businesses and, and, you know, doing a bit of equity or debt and just, you know, that I haven't got my head around agglomeration. What, what's your view on it overall? Um, well, I, I mean, I know Callum and Jeremy had a business that was the the, the basis of the book, um, and it was listed, I think, on NASDAQ Stockholm. Um, and then it ended up, I don't know all of the details, but it did end up going rather pear-shaped in the end. Um, I, I remember the first was, one did. <laughs> yeah. I think, They're going to love I us talking were, about this. <laughs> it's I only going to go to 25,000 downloads in the next few weeks, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know the details, but I, I understand there were some disputes between one of the shareholders that wasn't, um, that wasn't one of the um, founders buying into the agglomeration, but that had the big chunk of shares. But I, I don't know the detail. No. And of course, that's you know that's the other thing you've got to be aware of if you're dealing with a listed vehicle is anybody can become a shareholder. Um, you know, you don't have the when, when it's a private company, you can control who you might or might not offer your shares to. But when it's a listed vehicle. Um, it's, yeah. you know, it's open season for anyone. So that point there is the reason why I haven't sort of lent into it with people who ask me about it. I, I often say, you know, listen, if you've got a decent business and you want to, let's say your exit, um, is a private equity or PE based or a trade based exit. And, you know, you're quite comfortable, you know, getting your business up to sort of 10 times EBITDA or whatever the valuation metric is going to be, then work, work back from that, right? Work back from that. And then you can actually look at kind of how you need to build the machine over what time period. Yeah. To be able to then create that value, um, and yeah. I just find that a little bit more. As perhaps it's my brain, I find that just a bit easier to see some level of certainty or some level of predictability in that type yes. of structuring. Yes, no, that's true. Um, although there are, I, I, you know, I've come across a number of 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 founders who love the idea of doing an IPO. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, you know, <laughs> even even if it's only for their ego. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, I mean, I mean, the, the upside of, uh, being listed on a public exchange is, um, there's never any dispute over what the value of the company is because the it's reported on the stock exchange every day. Uh, you might or might not like it, but, but there's no dispute as to what the share price is. Um, and you know, if the company is in reasonably good shape and well-managed and growing, um, you have virtually limitless pools of capital that you can access. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, in my second PLC, um, we did a 28 million pound raise and bought out our largest global competitor uh, in an all cash deal. It was, it was private equity backed. Um, and they wow. were, it was, it was the last holding in a fund that was probably six or seven years past its, um, its uh, normal maturity date. And it was literally the last investment and they just, they wanted to get rid of it, but it had to be a ca an all cash deal. I love that. And, and half the time in those sort of things, they've already made their money back. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, the last piece they could be a bit more bullish on as well. So um, you're... Yeah. I mean, that, well, I talk a little bit about that one in the book, but that, that was a tricky deal. Yeah. So what's your... So so now let's just talk about what you do now. Okay. So, yep. so in terms of your consultancy and kind of how you work, because you work as a lot on Founders and businesses that want to drive growth quickly, growth fast, That's correct. Pre precise. So just take, take me through what a normal 
a normal intervention? I know they're not always normal, but just take us through like when someone gets in touch with you and they say, okay, that's great, David. I've read your book. I now want to grow fast. Yeah. What, what do you do? What do you start with? It, I mean, it, it, it'll depend. Typically what I'll start with is we'll sit down and, and probably do a, a, a half day strategic planning session where we just lay everything out, look at all the options. You know, I'll, I'll delve more into what's going on. Um, you know, if you look, if you look at the structure of my book um, in the front section, um, there's a chapter called your business and there's a chapter called your head. And I like to go deep inside the business and deep inside whoever the owners are as head and understand their motivations and what is it that they're looking to do and, and why, and, and, you know, and, and, and what are they going to do? You know, let's say we go down this road and, and they're wildly successful and they sell out and they've got more money than they possibly could have imagined before. I want to know what they're then going to do. Cause what I don't want to do is, is, is work with somebody who's then just going to go and sit on a beach. Um, I, so what does that I, what does that mean though? So so when you say because a lot of the, a lot of people don't know, right? Like you know, I know you can spend time. People, yeah, some people but, don't know. I, I I like to I like to work with people who have an idea that you know when I've when I've made my money, you know, I want to go and do such and so. I'm 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 working with the founder of a, a company over in Switzerland right now, and and he's very into um, uh, promoting animal uh, welfare. So when he's made his money. He's going to go and establish things that support animal welfare. Uh, for me personally, um, it's all about education and gender equality. So I'm I'm going to be doing a lot of stuff that's driving and supporting that. You know, and 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 I, I like to see people who are aligned to the UN Global Goals. Got it. So you're looking at impact as well as wealth creation. Correct. And so so if someone says like, okay, I just want to sell my company for eight figures, and then I want to go and buy more companies, and then create nine figures. Is that not, is that for you not that interesting? I mean, it's, it's interesting if, if there's something bigger beyond that, if, you know, if, 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 if he just wants to, he or she wants to go and turn it into nine figures and then sell it and then turn it into 10 figures and then sell it and then turn it into 11 figures and then die, you know, what's the point? Um, you know, in, 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 I, I don't have any objections to people making tons of money and, and, and love supporting them and doing it. But I like to know that if I'm working with people to help them make tons of money, that they're going to do something good with it. And do you stick around for that? I mean, what if you say, I mean, obviously there's a there's a motivation for you then to work with someone. I get that, almost a qualification. But once they once you have to help them achieve that 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 first financial goal, let's call it, do you get involved in what they do next? Um, it'll depend on the individual. Um, okay. I've got a couple of individuals where I've been working with them over an extended period of time. Okay. Wow. So, so, so let's just play with this a little bit more because I'm, I'm just curious of, of how it works. So you'll go in there, you'll look at the business, you'll look at the head, you look at the motivation, you look at the impact. All good. What practically do you then do? I mean, are you, are you often going to businesses that need a bit of fixing and optimization or are they already in fast growth and you just want to accelerate that growth? I tend to be more towards the latter. Okay. Um, when I first started out doing consulting type work. I got involved in a number of turnaround things. Um, I can do turnaround, but it doesn't float my boat. Um, I, I much prefer growing than, than, you know, going in and slashing and, and fixing and, 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 you know, full respect to the people who specialize in doing that because it's a necessary service, but it's not what I would prefer to do myself. So I like to deal with people who are, you know, they've got a business that they've built to a reasonable size 
And I guess my ideal client would be one who says, you know, I've grown it to X uh, and, and X will typically be somewhere in the seven figures, maybe approaching yep. eight, but in, in that kind of size. Um, I've grown it to this size. I don't really know how to grow it anymore. I don't know what else I can do. I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure where to turn. Um, and, and then we'll sit down and we'll talk about, well, you know, who are your competitors? And maybe you could buy one of them. Who are your suppliers? And maybe you could buy one of them. And, and one of the ones that I quite like even is going downstream. Well, who's one of your customers? Maybe you could buy them. Like it. And, and your model, which I know you speak about, the, the, as you call it, the face methodology, which you just talked yes. about. You talk about funding first. So we'll keep yep. talking about funding a bit now. Uh, and then it's acquire, then it's consolidate, then it's exit. Um, it's not dissimilar yep. to, to some of the stuff I do, except for I don't start with the funding. But I'm just curious, why is the funding the first part of the model? Um, because I like to look at it from the perspective of um, if I've got money in the bank, I can negotiate a good deal. Okay. I can always negotiate a, a better deal when I have some cash uh, than going out and trying to scrabble, um, you know, scrabble structures together and, and, and pull a bit of this and a bit of vendor finance and, oh, we'll do some asset finance and, oh, God, we're a few hundred grand short. How are we going to do that? I'd much rather be able to go into a deal knowing that I've got X million in the bank and I'm ready to go out and structure a deal and I can go to the vendor and, and say, right, we'll do the deal and here's the terms and, you know, I have the money in the bank. Here you go. You can see it on my bank statement. Um, let's do it. And so that's and, the first part of what you look at. So let, let's go back to our, um, again, I'm thinking the practicalities for people listening. Yep. So you, business is doing, let's say 5 million. So halfway, yep. you know, halfway through sevens. And you go, you firstly look at, you know, what they've got on the balance sheet, what they've got access to. Right. Yep. And, and so you're looking at that first, you're not necessarily then suggesting we're going to go and fundraise straight away. I suppose, I presume then you're looking at the strategy for acquisitions You've got to get the strategy right. And then, and, and, and oftentimes what will happen is, is you'll put the fundraising plan in place and you'll go out and you'll talk to investors and get investors who are supportive of what you're doing, depending on the nature of the business and the track record and all of that. What, what oftentimes will happen is they'll sign up and they'll make the commitment. Um, but the drawdown is dependent on a deal happening. Got it. Okay, exactly. So you're you're presenting the strategy, uh, you know, the, the acquisitive strategy, the growth strategy. It's based on that, and then of course you can then present that as the strategy for a fundraise. Okay. Yes. You can use yes. that as the emphasis. Well, this is what the money is going to be used for, and this is what the value could be if we do this. Get it? Exactly. Okay. And do you? So you don't treat it like let's call it again. I'm just going. I'm just curious by asking this question as a fundraise per se. Are you taking it on a kind of, uh, it's a very specific strategy, isn't it? So you're not looking if, for a line so of credit. If I'm, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm doing face, so yeah. it's, it's okay. So, so, you know, here we are and I've got my 5 million pound business and I want to scale it to be a 50 million pound business. And then I'm going to exit and I'm going to do all these great things that David's happy with. So, so we'll, we'll go on the journey together. Then we'll work out, okay, what are the kind of road, what are the kind of steps along the road? So, as a five million pound business, you're not going to go out and acquire a twenty-five million pound business, but you might, you might to start off acquire a two million pound business and get that integrated, and then acquire a bolt-on million pound business and get that integrated. So you demonstrate your your kind of track record and you understand what the flow is, because for 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 a lot of people who've never done this before, it's as as you well know, it's the integration step where a deal either succeeds or falls over. 
And you have to, to some extent, plan that from the outset as well. I mean, I know exactly. there's, you know, you've got to know what you're going into. I suppose the question was more around, you know, you don't want to continuously be going out there and raising external capital from various sources. Again, correct no, me if I'm wrong no. here. So you, you'd get, like to have so you get a committed facility. So let's say you've got yes. a committed facility, right? So I, I go out and I say, here's my plans, and this is what I'm going to do. And I reckon I'm going to need, you know, I want a committed facility of 10 million over the next three years. Um, but we'll draw it down against individual deals, but the deals will meet these criteria. Yeah, got it. It's it's very it's very similar to some of the stuff I did in my private equity side. In fact, what I did a lot was go in there and fix the problems first. So I did a bit of turnaround, but it was more from an operational pers perspective of that. Yeah. And then it was, we already had the capital, right? Because it's a private equity firm, we had to deploy yes. that capital in various ways. And then it was the sort of buy them, build approach, you know, yeah. and then consolidate then exit that thing. So I love it. Yeah. I love the, I love I love the idea, and this is why I want to have you on the show more than anything else, of being able to, as you say, big, bring that, that big company thinking or that big company strategy that a lot of small businesses don't think they can do for lots of reasons. A lot of it comes back to here, mindset, exactly. and then making that, A, accessible, but realistic, and then obviously very valuable. So yep. yeah, spot on. I, I still think it's an under-leveraged opportunity. When you look at the global marketplace of how value is created in companies right now, yep. I don't think there's enough smaller businesses thinking like this or having access to this. What no, there aren't. There aren't. No. No, it, it seems to hit me. And I, and I'm doing people like you and me. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. High five over that. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? But I do agree with that because a lot of the time, you know, and I love this about founders, you know, really passionate, creative entrepreneurs. I love the fact that they can create something out of doesn't seem like much, right? There's a lot of like, you know, seeing a problem, passion to fix it, bringing together resources, but they all invariably hit a point. Very few that I've met, that hit, you know, can, can take it all the way through. They hit a point where they reach the level of their skill set and to some extent mindset. Yeah. You know, and that's where yeah. you and I might come in or others and, and help. Exactly. Cool. And that's and that's why your head is such a key thing in my my whole my whole uh strategy and in, in in fact in in the training programs that i'm doing now your head is day one yeah. it's like let's just get inside because because if you can't wrap your head around the ideas then i can teach you everything else but you're not going to get it yeah I, well i i often say when i started this podcast i said that you know the 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 level that which someone can scale a business comes down to their identity right? Which, you know, it's, it's what they feel that they are capable of doing. So if you yep. can work on that or get someone to realize they have more, they have access to more than they think they have in different ways, they step into something which feels uncomfortable, but that's when they start to grow and develop. Then often that's when the business starts to perform as well or grow. Yep. Exactly. All righty. Let's talk about, let's talk a little bit more about funding. Um, okay. because I just want to get your view. We're, we're recording this. We're coming up to the midpoint of 2021. The world's starting to open up a little bit, sort of post-lockdowns everywhere. Still a few things to go, I believe. Yep. Uh, we've got um, threats of market crashes. We've got, um, you know, potential inflation coming. Blah, you know, all this sort of stuff, I, right? I think you can take the word potential out. I read somewhere recently that the United States printed more money in the last 18 months than they did since World War II. There you go. Well, you know what I've done, right? And I've done something quite mad and crazy. I've, I've cashed in all of my um, shares. Right. And, okay. and some people say, oh, you know, is that early? Is it not? But I've, I've cashed up right now um, in preparation for some, some asset, um, asset acquisitions. <laughs> right. Okay. Very but my question to you I've, is really. I've diversified. I've, I've recently bought, 
I've recently bought uh, some crypto, which was, you know, I mean, it's a, a fun ride. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've bought a chunk of gold and silver, um, and I've bought a chunk of investment grade wine. There you go. So, so physical, well, not crypto, but I'm, I'm physical assets as opposed to fiat currency driven. Things. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at, there's a couple of businesses I'm looking to acquire in the next three months. Uh, one's in the sort of um, security space and the other's in the commercial cleaning space. And okay. they are extremely well priced, let's say, um, because the, the owners of both companies just don't want to go through any type of growth stage again or anything like that, profitable businesses. And I can yep. buy both of those for, uh, for quite a small amount of my own capital because I can leverage okay. the rest and I've got investors. So I'm Perfect. looking to do that. Now, I've, again, I've got to ride that a little bit through whatever's going to come. Right? Yep. These are profitable businesses in sectors, which I think are still going to be very buoyant and valuable, even if we do go through change. So that's what I'm okay. sort of focusing on. Yep. Excellent. So let's talk about um, let's talk about money that's available in the market. So so okay. if you're working with a client now and they're you know they've got a certain amount of cash in the business but they want to go and raise or get a line of credit or get access to capital, where are you where are you looking for that? Where, where are you seeing the the pockets of that money is now and how do you build that that fundraising strategy for a client? I mean, in all honesty, it depends on the client and the stage of their business. Um, but I am. For most of the things that I'm working on now, um, I am either going down um, venture series A type uh, funding. Um, I'm not working on anything that's series B or later at the moment. Um, but uh, most of it is looking into the kind of the venture series A uh, range of things. Um, I did a lot of work last year on the, uh, Siebel's, oh, yeah. uh, the coronavirus business interruption loan scheme, um, which was, which was a great scheme to have in place. And it, um, it, it streamlined the, the debt raising process for a lot of companies. I'm correct me if I'm wrong on that. You can, you can buy businesses off Siebel's in the UK, but you couldn't do it off bounce back. Is that correct? Uh, I believe that's the case. There was a, there was a, again, apparently they've yeah. just in the UK, um, yeah. HMRC have employed a thousand investigators. Apparently I read this in the, in the press recently to look at, let's call it, let's call it, um, potentially uh, fraudulent bounce back. Well, well, yeah, but, well, yes, exactly. And pandemic based things going on. <laughs> yeah, true, true. But, um, no, but, but, but I mean, in, in, in many cases over the course of the last year, I was simply advising my clients, look, there's this debt scheme available, take it. It's the cheapest money you're ever going to see. Yeah, okay. Even if you hang on to it for a year and then pay it back, take the cash and just have the cash in your business so that if this thing turns nasty, you've got some resource. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I think there's a, there's a piece there where, you know, the clever use of, of debt or capital you know, strategically, a lot of people get scared by that, right? They, I don't, you know, yeah. have this principle of I don't want to be in debt. Yeah. But they're not looking at the the leverage or the cost of capital in terms of what they can do with exactly. it, which comes back to your mindset thing again. I can see why that's such exactly. a powerful part of the model. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, I know the bounce back was a particularly attractive thing, but I mean, I was, I was on, on healthy businesses. I was seeing Siebel's rates at like 3%. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I mean, oh, we did that in our businesses. We, we, we basically went after the, uh, as much of that as we possibly could um, yeah. to, just to have it, you know, in terms <clears> of, you know, for deployment in different things, but we did spend, invest quite a bit of that um, into marketing and product development, you know, again, right. knowing yeah. that people weren't spending money on marketing, particularly when things were starting to heat up 
mid-2020. Exactly. Uh, things like Facebook ads and some of the things that we invest in in our business, they were the cheapest they'd been in a decade. Yeah, no kidding. And and if you're getting a return that's more than 3% on what you're spending, it's paying off the interest exactly. on the loan. I know. But, th- but this is the sort of thing, again, I always like to frame, you know, we're having this conversation about, you know, a, a broad range of things. But as an entrepreneur and a business owner listening to this, these are key principles of how you can create growth and value, right? And, yes. and sometimes, you know, and I often say this, if you don't know this or you haven't been exposed to this, it's not in your environment or in your kind of understanding. That's why, you know, the stuff we're talking about by going out and getting people to come into your business and look at it with a fresh pair of eyes is such a critical thing because that investment, and it is an investment for growth, could give you significantly bigger returns than you'll be able to achieve by yourself. So don't get stuck, you know, Absolutely. in that area. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Well, let's, let's. The way I often like to explain it is, is, is imagine a pie and you own all of the pie and that pie is worth a hundred. And now imagine that that pie is worth a thousand and you own half of it. Are you better off or worse off? Precisely. Let, let's let that sink in. Because <laughs> I, I do that. I mean, I, people, people think that I buy businesses 100%. Quite often I'm JVing, right? I'm buying 50% stakes. I've got a couple of 5 and 10% stakes in businesses. I don't care. Right? At the end of the day, like, you know, as long as there isn't any uh, disproportionate stress that I'm feeling or I have to get stuck into a lower value investment because it needs my personal attention, it doesn't bother me because then I've got multiple capital events, liquidity events that can happen over time. And sometimes they're bigger ones, sometimes they're small, but it doesn't make a difference to me. And again, I think sometimes people have to get that in their head as well. Okay. Let's finish off then with um, something we touched on very briefly at the very beginning when I was uh, doing your introduction. I know, you know, we mentioned impact and we mentioned sort of some of the bigger mission. And I know that, um, you know, funding focus um, is is something that you're very, very passionate about. And you've got a, a program around this as well. So do you want to just talk to us about that quickly? Yeah. So so funding focus came about um, following an event that I was speaking at about two and a half years ago. I was just an SME business event and I was talking about fundraising. And after my talk, a woman came up and asked me why so little venture capital funding went to female entrepreneurs. And I'm slightly ashamed to say that at the time I had no idea it was even an issue. Um, and I started doing research and found out stuff. I, I, I had a number of meetings with people that were in my network, including the chief executive of the British Business Bank and um, some friends who worked at the London Stock Exchange from my days of being a PLC CFO. Um, and just came to this view that, look, there there is this gross inequity in the system. I mean, a report published by the British Business Bank looked at every VC deal in the UK in 2017. And all female founding teams submitted 5% of the pitch decks and got less than 1% of the funding. Mixed gender teams submitted 20% of the pitch decks and got 10% of the funding. And all male teams submitted 75% of the decks and got more than 89% of funding. So there's clearly an imbalance. And so I decided to put an event on uh, which we held at the London Stock Exchange in November of 2019. And I learned two big things at that event. Uh, number one, I discovered that this isn't just a UK problem. This is a global issue. Um, and number two, it isn't a case of women versus men. It's white guys like you and me and everyone else. And so we've kind of broadened the horizon uh, we then had ideas on running more events in 2020 until COVID came along. And, and, and so we pivoted a bit. We ended up running a, a, another big event on the anniversary date in November of 2020. 
and we've since run a number of smaller events. Uh, we're planning another big event in November of 2021, um, but we've now tapped into an audience in 25 countries on five continents. Um, and and these are just people who are interested in following and and, and I'm looking to see where this is gonna go. Wow. And so, <laughs> that's, so that's the, awesome. whole idea, the whole idea started about raising awareness and uh, one of my core values and, and one of my UN global goals that I'm committed to is, is quality education. Um, and so we've just started to run some training programs around this that are just on, on, on the, 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 the first one we launched is just a short six week course on kind of getting your head around the basics. What, what do you need to know before you go down the journey of actually trying to raise money? Um, and then we're going to be launching another program in the autumn, which will be a sort of a we'll do it with you over a, a four to six month period where we'll we'll work with you to sort out what needs to happen in your business and we'll work with you to get your pitch deck ready and your financial models ready and all of that kind of stuff because so many people i talk to they they they, they 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 don't know where to turn um they don't know what to talk about they don't know how to prepare um and yet they're aware that you know there's all this money out there and and, and there is there are staggering sums of money out there but you have to know how to get it and and you have to work hard to get it it's not you know it absolutely doesn't grow on trees and and you know it's uh, as i said there's there's sort of there's two level there's two playing fields one for the white men and one for everyone else but even for the white men it's not easy to go out and raise money it's hard work and it's work that's on top of the day job um but my goal with funding focus is to level that other playing field so that everybody has it and is it, for, is it so it is specifically um, for gender minority group inequality focus? It's focused on female entrepreneurs and the, the term, the terminology changes all the time. Um, yeah. But we're currently saying underrepresented in entrepreneurs of any gender. Right. Yeah. I, I find it difficult sometimes to, to, to explain without then having some bias myself. You say one group, I mean, when, and then you, when we, it's difficult. Yeah, when we first started, we we talked about we talked about um, ethnic minority, uh, but then when all of a sudden I discovered I've got a global audience, I can't go to India and talk about ethnic minority. I'm the ethnic minority. Yeah. So it's yeah, terminology's been 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 um, an issue, but terminology won't hold us back from from. No, from, as, as uh, if the intent is there, and and and, and the intent is honourable as as it is, then yeah. that's the most important piece, right? Yeah. So, and I've given a I've given a TEDx talk about this um, called "The wow. Fight for Fairer Funding," um, and I am currently writing my second book, uh, which is all about this as well. The good thing is you can help these um, these founders of businesses scale up and exit, and then you can subtly pitch them your bigger mission, and then exactly. when they have their wealth creation moment, they can then contribute to your fund. Exactly. <laughs> just 100%. to just to just to unpack the strategy you, you there a little bit. Strategy, <laughs> We're doing this for a long time. All right. <laughs> uh, listen, um, we've covered a whole heap here, David, in the space of about 30, 35 minutes. Um, it's been awesome. So I'm, as I said, I was looking forward to this conversation because I love the way you simplify something, which I think a lot of people think is more confusing than it needs to be across all those areas, actually, not just what we, yeah. we spoke about at the very beginning. So um, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Are there any last um, uh, bits of advice or tips or something you've noticed that's happening that you want to kind of give to the audience before we finish up today? I mean, stay positive, uh, believe in yourself, um, and you know, be open-minded to to look at things that you 
didn't necessarily think were possible or or applied to you because you know one of the one of the key things and it was the kind of the underlying theme of my book was here's what big companies do the world has moved on and small companies can do it too so don't turn away from it and think that's not a strategy that I can follow it's a strategy that you absolutely can follow and it can be implemented very successfully very good. Okay. And where can everybody find you if they want to get in touch about any of the stuff that we have? Uh, spoken yeah. about so today? the easiest way to find me, uh, either Google David B. Horn, B as in Bravo. It's actually Bowen is my middle name. It's a family name. Uh, so David B. Horn. If you Google that, um, I come up. Um, or my email address is dbh at addthenmultiply.com. Very good. All right, David. Well, listen, thank you. And I look forward to us collaborating on something in the future. I'm sure there's plenty of stuff we can talk about Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks, Nick. And there you have it. Another episode of Scale Up Your Business. Thank you very much for listening. And if you haven't yet, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help the show become even better. And while you're there, make sure you hit that subscribe button to help you on your scale up journey. Now, perhaps you're thinking of growing and scaling your business. Perhaps now is the time. If that's you, then please check out suyb.global. That's where we have all of our programs, including the Growth Accelerator Partnership, the Maximize Value Partnership, all of our services, and of course, coaching and mentoring. Once again, be grateful, be brave, have faith, and show up. Until next time.